All right, so John chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which, was, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, notice how verse 3 is followed by verse 5. Part of verse 3 and all of verse 4, which appear in the King James Version, are absent. However, you should have a footnote in the ESV following verse 3, so let's read the footnote. And if you're looking at a King James Version, you can just keep reading the remainder of verse 3 and verse 4. The footnote says, Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped first, whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And now verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now we spent some three years working our way through Matthew's gospel, and only once did I pause to make an extended comment about a textual variant. A variant is a disagreement between multiple manuscripts. And that issue is found in Matthew 23 and verse 14. The ESV omits verse 14, as do many modern translations. But like John 5, the ESV puts the words of verse 14, which are in the King James, in a footnote. Now, I alert you to this fact, lest you think that there are textual problems all over the place. There are not. There was only one time in all of John's go- Matthew's gospel where we paused and really looked at a variant. In John's gospel, we're going to have to do it twice. And this is one of those times. All right? 
But I don't want anyone thinking that we just cannot trust our Bibles. I don't want anyone doubting the reliability of the book that you're holding open in your lap right now. So for that reason, I want to take a little time with this this morning, and then we'll get into the text. Okay, and so let me begin with four observations. Number one, a manuscript is a handwritten copy. Second, every copy of the Bible for more than 1,400 years was a manuscript, a handwritten copy. There were no printed Bibles, no printed copies before the invention of the printing press. Thirdly, there were no verse divisions in those ancient manuscripts or the original autographs penned by the apostles. When someone claims that modern translations eliminate Bible verses deliberately, well, you have to understand there were no verse divisions. There were no verses in the originals. So right away, there's some bias there. Fourthly, there are a few places where we find sentences in some manuscripts, but not in others. The end of verse 3 and verse 4 in the King James Version, and the footnote in the ESV record a sentence, one sentence not found in some manuscripts. All right? But by no means are we talking about major differences between manuscripts. These things are relatively rare. In fact, I would say extremely rare. So here's the question, why in rare instances do we find sentences in one person's manuscript over here, but not in somebody else's manuscript? One person's handwritten copy, but not somebody else's handwritten copy. Why is that? Why might that be? And to answer that question, I want to back up from that question for just a minute, a few minutes, and talk about preservation. The New Testament, as we have it today, has been preserved for us and some 5,700-plus Greek manuscripts. Those are the ones that have survived. And there were probably thousands and thousands and tens of thousands more over the centuries that were produced. But that 5,700 is ten times the number of manuscripts than we have for any other source from the ancient world. Nothing comes close to the preservation of of the New Testament. And that's not all. There are more than 10,000 Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. And there are, in addition, hundreds of Coptic, Syriac, Gothic, Ethiopic, and Armenian New Testament manuscripts. In addition, there are an estimated 1 million quotations of the New Testament in the writings of the church fathers. If we lost every manuscript, every manuscript, we could reconstruct virtually the entire New Testament from the quotations in the church fathers. There simply are no writings in the ancient world that come anywhere close to the state of preservation that we have for the New Testament. But remember, every one of those thousands upon thousands of manuscripts were written by a human hand. 
And we know that when you make a copy by hand, you might make a mistake. You might copy something down inaccurately. If we all tried that, we'd all make a mistake. You know you would, right? Now, there are some who claim that inspiration and inerrancy applied not only to the original apostles when they wrote the autographs. Autograph is the original copy. But inspiration and inerrancy applied also to the scribes who made additional copies. And you may have heard those claims from certain quarters of the church, but frankly, this is impossible. And that's because no two of those thousands upon thousands of manuscripts are identical. So if the Holy Spirit preserved one, which one was it? There are thousands of them. And those are the ones that we have. Which one is the right one? So I do believe that inspiration and inerrancy applied to the original autographs. And we have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of those original autographs. Now... When you look at those manuscripts, you will find, in cases, misspellings, omissions, additions, transpositions. And I'll explain that in just a moment. And people get really nervous when they hear about the number of differences between manuscripts. I mean, Christians get really, really nervous. In fact, some of them are just downright frightened. And I want to mention this to you because it comes out a lot in the popular press and you know you hear some interview with some supposed New Testament scholar and he's just trying to overwhelm you because he's not a believer with all the number of differences. Don't anyone be misled by all these differences. There are many differences because we have many manuscripts. Many differences because we have many manuscripts. Let me explain that. If I said to you there are 15,000 differences between the manuscripts of the Bible, would that number bother you? 15,000? How about 30,000? 40,000? How about 90,000 differences between the manuscripts of the New Testament? Probably somebody here today is really frightened by that number. 90,000 differences between manuscripts? How can you trust the Bible? Actually, friends, 90,000 is a very small number. And here's why. Let's assume that you have 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 10,000 Latin manuscripts, some 15,000 handwritten manuscripts. Okay, you got 15,000. This is just for this is just for illustration. You've got 15,000 manuscripts. In theory, you have 15,000 scribes who copied those manuscripts. And let's imagine each of those scribes made just six errors. Just six. A scribe misspelled a word. He omitted a word. He transposed two words. Sometimes you'll see Jesus Christ. Other times you see Christ Jesus. Well, which is it? Well, does it, you know, it's not going to ruin your faith, is it? His eyes skipped over a whole line of text when he was reading. That happens. Six mistakes would be minuscule. Right? I mean, if you try to copy out the New Testament by hand, you made only six mistakes, we would say, you are amazing. 
But if 15,000 scribes made just six copy errors, you would have 90,000 differences. So again, you have a lot of differences because you have a lot of manuscripts. That's why. Does that make sense? You have a lot of people making copies, and so you have the potential there with all those copies for spelling errors and so forth. When you multiply the small number of differences by the large number of manuscripts, you get some really big numbers really, really quickly. And people love to mislead you by claiming there are thousands upon thousands of errors in the New Testament. And friends, this is just entirely misleading. It's just red herring is what that is. You get those large numbers because, again, you have many, many, many manuscripts. And by the way, these scribes are going between languages, which actually makes it even more difficult. Think of it this way. If we had a million manuscripts with just one copyist error in each of them, you would have a million differences. And somebody would say, oh, you got a million differences in the Bible. How can you trust it? Actually, <laughs> that would be amazing if you just had one difference, one error in all those manuscripts. So I say all that to say, let's not let your faith be undermined. Now imagine that we turn this room into a scriptorium. And in the scriptorium, a scribe would stand up at a lectern like I am here and read a copy of the Bible aloud. So let's imagine that I stood up here and I read aloud the copy of John. And you all sat out there and you copied down what I said by hand. Right? How many differences would we generate if I read aloud the entire book of John and you all made a copy. How many errors would we generate? How many little mistakes would we make? A misspelling here, an omission here, someone forgot a word over here, missed a whole line that I read. Answer is, we would have a lot. We would have a lot of differences because we have a lot of people making those copies. Now let's assume that my original copy gets lost. Have we lost God's word? Absolutely not. You all made a copy. Lots and lots of copies. And here's where the science of textual criticism comes in. That word criticism sounds kind of harsh. But what textual criticism does is it collects all of your copies and compares them. And when 99% of your copies read Jesus Christ... And Tim's copy reads Christ Jesus. Well, we assume that the original must have said Jesus Christ and Tim just simply heard it wrong. I mean, right? 99% of you agree it was Jesus Christ and he put Christ Jesus. So we say, okay, that's, that's where the air crept in. That's how this works. And most of the differences in manuscripts involve these kinds of little minuscule differences. And there are thousands upon thousands of them, but only because we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. Now, I am oversimplifying just a bit because it's another layer of complexity that comes in when people make copies of copies and then copies of copies of copies. And a mistake can be perpetuated down the line. And also a little bit challenging when you can't go back to the original copyist and say, what did you mean here? Because he died 300 years ago. You see, so there is some complexity here that I'm not even going into. Over time, you would find that there are little differences that creep into text. Okay. You also find 
occasionally that there are some larger differences that creep into the manuscripts. We're not talking about a simple spelling error or an omission of a word or something like that. We're talking about something that's a bit more substantial. Later on in John, there's a bit of a bigger one that we're going to have to deal with. I'm not going to deal with it today, all right? But here in chapter 5, we have discovered one of those larger issues. We're not talking about merely a misspelling. We're talking about a whole sentence. A whole sentence. So did the Apostle Paul pen the words found in the footnote of the ESV or the end of verse 13 and verse 14 in the King James Version? I mean, that's what we want to know. Did, Did John write those words? And the answer is, nobody can say for certain. Now, most scholars feel that he did not write those words, conservative, Bible-believing scholars. But nobody can say absolutely for certain. Those words in Greek were indeed included in Greek manuscripts that were available to the King James translators in the early 17th century. So they looked at the Greek manuscript and they translated it into English. However, since the 17th century, older Greek manuscripts have been discovered And those manuscripts do not have the words that we find there in the ESV footnote or in the King James Version. Those Greek manuscripts, those older manuscripts, were not available to the King James translators. And again, those older manuscripts do not record the end of verse 3 or verse 4. And that's why many modern translators have chosen to put them in a footnote. So the translators are not trying to remove verses from the Bible. That's not their agenda. They are simply trying to keep out a sentence that may not have been there in the first place. Because the fact is, we're not to subtract from God's word, but we're also not to add to God's word. So it really works both ways. All right? Now, the fact that the older manuscripts do not contain these words probably, at least in my estimation, indicates that John did not pin those words. However, I can't say for certain, and I am not a New Testament language scholar. But if John didn't pin those words, how did they come to be included in the Greek manuscripts that underlie the King James Version? Well, let's take a stab at it. Would you look at verse 7? All right, look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Friends, those words appear in all the manuscripts. John wrote those words. At times, the waters of the pool of Bethesda were stirred up. Although verse 7 does not explain why. It's possible the pool was fed by intermittent springs at Royal Bethesda during rainy periods. The pool could have also been fed by the ancient Chalybeate Spring. This was a spring that periodically flooded with minerals. Ancient sources speak of the waters of Bethesda periodically turning red with mineral influx. And in numerous cultures, including our own, People associate mineral springs with healing and restoration. This is not that far-fetched. People go places in the world today where they have these mineral pools and dunk themselves under for healing. And ancient sources do speak of the waters of Bethesda periodically being churned up and people trying to get inside them. 
Now, whether this worked or not, that's, that's not the point, all right? The fact is, we may never know what to make of verse 7. I mean, it is a little bit confusing. The problem is the Pool of Bethesda was destroyed nearly 2,000 years ago, so we really can't go investigate the pool. Nevertheless, verse 7 does clue us in that there is at least a popular superstition in the day that a person who stepped down to those stirring waters received some sort of medicinal aid. So that much we know. That much we know. All right? But it is very likely that thousands of people have read through John chapter 5 and they have been just as curious as we are about verse 7. What does this mean? And that curiosity may account for the textual variant at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. So let's read it again. Look at the footnote. Waiting for the move to the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now those words appear to explain verse 7 and the roiling of the waters, right? It seems like. Those verses explain that verse three, verse four explain verse seven, but they may not have been John's explanation. So here's what we do know: scribes who made those manuscripts by hand very often would include marginal notes, the way you sometimes write in your Bible. But we can tell the difference between your handwriting and the printed text. All right, but you can't always tell that in a handwritten copy because it's the same hand. And sometimes those marginal notes were there just as textual commentary, explanations, little interpretational reminders, little points of clarification. However, at other times, a scribe would realize that when he was making a copy, his eyes skipped over a verse or two, so he would go over in the margin and he would write out the verse that he left out over here in the margin. So imagine a later scribe gets a copy of the book of John and he sees this marginal note. Okay, why is that there? Is that commentary? Or is that something the previous scribe left out and he wanted to include, so he just put it there in the margin? How would you know? Especially if you're looking at a copy that's two or 300 years old and you can't go back and ask the guy. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. So it happens from time to time, it, it seems to scholars, that a later scribe will come along and he'll take one of those marginal notes and he'll pull it into the text thinking that marginal note or commentary was supposed to be part of the original text. He thought, well, maybe it was a verse that got left out. Of course, not verse, but a, a, a sentence that got left out, and he just he draws it into the text. It's even possible this sort of thing could happen more than once. Not all of the end of verse 3 and verse 4 might have been added at the same time. And there, there are, in fact, three distinct clauses. Let's note them. Verse 3, waiting for the movement of the water. That's one clause. Verse 4, for the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons in the pool and stirred the water. And then you have this final clause, whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. It is conceivable that these were different marginal notes. And they were pulled into the text at different times. 
This is the suggestion of D.A. Carson, who was probably the leading evangelical commentator on John's gospel, and a man totally committed to the inerrancy and authority of God's word. He's not a critic in the sense that he wants to do away with God's word. He is a, a formidable New Testament scholar, all right, who really believes in the inerrancy and integrity of God's word. And he, his thought is, well, maybe you have multiple marginal notes that got pulled in here at different times. Okay. There does indeed seem to be some popular superstition that an angel periodically would go down to the waters and stir them up, and perhaps the scribe wrote that in the margin as some sort of explanatory note. At some point along the way, somebody pulled that in, and somebody made another note and pulled more in. We just we just do not know for certain. We do not know for certain. But here's what we do know, is that when you go back to the earlier manuscripts, you don't find those words. And typically, scholars will favor the older manuscripts because over time, you get more stuff creeping in, right? Over time, you get more and more of those marginal notes that creep into the text. So typically, the older manuscripts, I'm sorry, the the ones that are produced later are going to have a few more of these things that sort of creep into the text. All right, now I almost hesitate to go into all that detail, but I don't want anyone's faith here to be shaken. All right, because from time to time, you're reading the Bible, and you'll come across a footnote, and you're just wondering, okay, what does that mean? Why is that here? Is somebody trying to cut apart my Bible? Something like, that's not what's happening, all right? That's not what's happening. You have no reason to doubt the reliability and the integrity of God's Word. Occasionally, you'll come across a footnote like this in a modern translation, and I've just tried to explain why that might be. But think about, think about everything that's not in a footnote, all right. Think about everything that's not in a footnote. Okay? There's, there's no disagreement about it. It's, it's there in all the manuscripts. So we absolutely can trust God's word. We have God's word. I tend to think the end of verse 3 and verse 4 weren't in the original, but again, I can't say for certain. I don't know that anybody can. But I don't want anyone's faith to be shaken. Okay, that was kind of long and kind of academic, but hopefully that maybe helps some of you. Let us then proceed to understand this little narrative and how it fits into John's gospel. We'll come back next week and say just a bit more about it. In John chapter 5, Jesus returns to Jerusalem after his journey back to Galilee in John chapter 4. And verse 1 of John 5 tells us that Jesus came for a feast, although we're not told which one. Unlike Matthew, John does not give us a lengthy history of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Perhaps you've picked up on that by now. John is actually far more interested in recording Jesus' extended interactions and conversations with individuals. John actually focuses our attention rather narrowly on a few accounts, a few miracle accounts, and really develops them. So we really think through them. Already, we have heard Jesus converse with Nicodemus in the night, and with the Samaritan woman, and with the official we met last week, whose son was healed. And now we find Jesus suddenly back in Jerusalem, where he meets a desperately needy man. Also, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is just very, very highly selective in the miracles that he records. He has seven of them, if you recall. The synoptics tend to catalog miracles. They give you miracle account after miracle account after miracle account. 
Uh, very often they don't devote more than a verse or two to any one miracle. They focus on quantity. But John focuses on quality. He slows down and he forces you to look very carefully at that miracle account and say, what's going on here? So when you read John, let me encourage you to just sort of slow down all right, and examine and say, okay, what is John really getting at here? What is the message of this passage that is unique? And let's try to do that by asking two questions that I think will really help you appreciate this account. First question, who initiated the miracle? Very often when you read through the synoptics, Jesus just goes around and people come to him when they want healing. In this case, who initiated the miracle? Look at verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem of the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This, this must have been a horrific scene. Just sick and infirm people all over the place. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he... Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? So who's taking the initiative? Obviously, this is Jesus. Unlike the father back in chapter 4, who comes looking for Jesus, Jesus, in this case, takes the initiative. And this is actually unusual in the Gospels. We're going to see it again in chapter 9, when Jesus heals a blind man. But by and large, this is unusual. That Jesus takes the initiative is also clear in verse 7 where the man clearly does not expect Jesus to perform a miracle. All that he wants is for someone to put him into the pool when the waters are stirred up. That's what he's looking for. Get me into the pool. He's not thinking, oh, Jesus can heal me. It's also clear in verse 13. After the man is healed, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. That's verse 13. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So, Jesus clearly takes the initiative, and that's going to become important for interpreting the miracle. But can I pause right here for just a moment and pursue a little tangent? Among today's prosperity gospel preachers and so-called faith healers, the burden of healing tends to rest on the faith of the sick person. Have you noticed this? It's all up to the sick person. Any number of false miracle workers claim to be able to perform miracles so long as the person in need of healing has sufficient faith. If the miracle doesn't happen, well, then the fault must lie entirely with the person who needs the miracle. It's all his fault, right? But Jesus' miracle doesn't work that way. This man is healed not because of his great faith. In fact, Toward the end of the passage, there's a question about his loyalty to Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, he appears to betray Jesus to the Jewish leadership. So Jesus' healing power does not depend upon the faith, the character, or the moral worth of the person being healed. You can have ten lepers come, and only one comes back in gratitude. Further, Jesus' power is not limited by the lack of faith on the part of those who are being healed. And can I just point out one other difference between Jesus and the so-called faith healers? 
The faith healers stage their miracles in large auditoriums where they deliberately exclude the truly sick and infirm from approaching the stage. There's a great deal of evidence about this. They just The people that are truly sick, they marginalize them back to the back and back behind the cameras. These individuals would never dream of showing up at a local hospital or an infirmary or the pool of Bethesda. Notice what Jesus does. He goes to this place with all these sick people. He goes deliberately, knowing this is sort of the local hospital. Jesus shows up and deliberately heals a man. That's intriguing. So Jesus takes the initiative. Secondly, did you notice when Jesus performed this miracle? End of verse 16, the Sabbath. Jesus deliberately went to the pool of Siloam on the Sabbath. Jesus took the initiative on the Sabbath. He deliberately healed a man on the Sabbath. Isn't that intriguing? The Sabbath, as you know, is a major point of controversy between Jesus and the Jews. And the Jews were opposed to any kind of Sabbath work, including healing a man. Nevertheless, Jesus took the initiative to heal a man on the Sabbath. And you think about this. The man had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Surely Jesus could have waited one more day and healed him the day after the Sabbath, right? But he doesn't. Friends, this is no emergency room, life or death situation. Jesus could have waited another day, but he doesn't. He takes the initiative and he deliberately goes to the pool and heals a man on the Sabbath, even though it wasn't necessary. And this healing is going to blow up into a major argument with the Jews and Jesus over the Sabbath, an argument in which they ultimately seek to put him to death. In fact, this argument is going to creep back into the text later on in John, where the Jews later on at a later feast are still smarting over their earlier interactions with Jesus. Now, when Jesus was questioned about healing on the Sabbath, would you notice he doesn't back down an inch? In fact, Jesus just throws down the gauntlet. Look at verse 17. This is amazing. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, friends, did you just hear what Jesus said to a crowd of Jews who observe the Sabbath? Would you listen to that statement of the ears of the Jews who believe that they were imitating God by resting on the Sabbath? They were imitating the Creator by resting on the Sabbath. Jesus claims the Father is working on the Sabbath. What? This sounds to the Jews like blasphemy of the highest order. Strict Jewish observers of the Sabbath today engineer their elevators. Did you know this? To stop at every floor so you don't have to push the button. That's too much work. Imagine going to that kind of culture and claiming that God the Father is working on the Sabbath. And if that's not offensive enough, notice how Jesus directly associates himself with God by using the personal pronoun my. My Father. Jesus identified himself as working in association with the Father as if they're one on the Sabbath. And you'd better believe that this whole affair was a deliberate, calculated healing on the part of Jesus to confront the Jews. 
Jesus' miracle and his statements put the Jews on the warpath. And Jesus does not back down. In fact, the rest of the chapter is going to launch us into a magnificent assertion of Jesus' true identity. And when we come back, we'll really have to investigate the Sabbath. Because I personally believe there is a role for the Sabbath. We'll talk about all that next week. But what's really happening here is Jesus is very deliberately stirring things up in Jerusalem, right? Because he wants to get to the issue of his true identity. And this is the conclusion that John is really focusing our attention on. As he's saying, look at the quality of this miracle. This isn't just one more miracle because I've got 35 others. Look at this miracle. Slow down and look at it. And look at the controversy that it stirred up. And we'll look at that controversy next week. But for now, let's just explore one more dimension of our passage. What is the tone of the passage? And I asked that question in the context of last week. Last week, we explored the statement in John 4 concerning a prophet having no honor in his own country. And I suggested to you that John was contrasting the rather enthusiastic support that Jesus received in Sychar among the Samaritans with the more tepid response he received in Galilee from the Father and from other Jews. There's a different tone there. One is very enthusiastic, one is much more skeptical. Last week we also looked at the Gentile centurion in Matthew and we contrasted him with the official in John. And that centurion, if you recall, was a man of incredible faith. In fact, greater faith than any in Israel, Jesus said. But when we looked at the official last week, his faith was really tinged by doubt, by a bit of skepticism. Did Jesus really heal my son? What hour did that happen? Could it really happen? All right. Well, what about this invalid here in John chapter 5? If the centurion was really enthusiastic and the official last week was sort of skeptical but ended up believing, how would you describe the man here at the Pool of Bethesda? I suspect that he falls into the latter category if indeed he even belongs in that category. I'm not certain we can even say from the passage he's even a believer. And I'm saying that because of the outcome of the story. He seems to totally lack gratitude for the miracle. Look at verses 10 through 13. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Look at his response. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. He really appears to sort of shift the whole blame over to Jesus. Don't blame me for this. That man that healed me, it's his fault, right? And then you have to wonder how grateful he is. Verse 12, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Now, let me pause right there. It may not be entirely his fault, all right, but there is something intriguing here. I really wish we had the time to actually contrast this account with John 9, but let me tell you what you're going to find in John chapter 9, all right? In John chapter 9, there are many similarities with this miracle account, but also some profound differences. In John chapter 9, Jesus, if you recall, will spit on the ground, He'll make some mud, some clay sort of paste, and he'll put it in the man's eyes, and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He says, go away from here. The man can't see Jesus, he leaves, right? And the man obeys, and he's healed. But obviously, Jesus isn't around. 
As the story progresses, the man is extremely eager to discover who Jesus is. And you read right down to the chapter 9, through chapter 9, it's like the man just really wants to figure out who this guy is that healed me. He's desperate to find Jesus. And the moment that he lays eyes on Jesus for the first time, remember when Jesus touched him, he's still blind, he had to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. When he lays eyes on Jesus for the first time, and Jesus reveals his true identity, the man just believes with all his heart. Listen to the outcome. John 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the synagogue, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I I may believe in him? He really wants to believe. Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Saw him for the first time. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I mean, it's just like that. Jesus found the man. The man immediately embraced him and worshipped him. But here in John chapter 5, Jesus also heals a man whom, or Jesus also finds a man, rather, whom he healed. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him. But does he immediately embrace Jesus? Does he worship Jesus? Does he embrace him the way the blind man will in John chapter 9? We'll keep reading. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered that my father is working until now and I am working. Isn't there something a little bit wrong with that response? Especially when you contrast it with chapter 9. Would you just consider three points? First of all, you have to wonder if the man really cared to find Jesus. Yes, indeed, verse 13 tells us Jesus had withdrawn into the crowd. But remember, we are not dealing with a blind man who has to go bathe in the pool of Siloam before he can get the miracle. We're dealing with a man who stood instantly to his feet after 38 years. Don't you think that he would make some effort to lay hold on Jesus or to grasp him or follow him into the crowd or something? I mean, I think I would. Like, who touched me? Let's go after him. You don't see that here. You don't see that in this account. Second thing is this. You see Jesus immediately rebuking the man for his sin with a warning that something far worse could happen to him. Worse than 38 years of sickness. Now, we're not told whether his previous sin, I'm sorry, his previous malady was a result of his sin. We don't know that. That's a possibility, but the point is that Jesus himself seems rather unconvinced that the man at this point is a wholehearted worshiper. He's really confronting the man about his sin, which you don't find in John chapter 9, which I find very intriguing. And then thirdly, the man's response seems to be an instant betrayal of Jesus. We're not told which Jews he reported the miracle to, but presumably these are Jews in leadership because they had the power to persecute Jesus for a Sabbath violation. And as the chapter proceeds, it is clear that the man's report got Jesus in a lot of trouble, a whole lot of trouble with the Jerusalem authorities. In fact, that trouble is going to show up every time from now on when we find Jesus down in Jerusalem. It's going to keep showing up. So when you look at all that, you really have to wonder about this man. He's certainly not the centurion. 
And I don't think he's even the father that we met in John 4. This is a man who receives a miracle, and Jesus initiated that miracle. And it seems to me that really he has no gratitude at all for what Jesus has done for him. So in light of those three facts, let us just leave here today with a kind of concluding observation, and it's simply this. God's goodness, friends, can expose ingratitude in a person's heart. God's goodness can really expose what's really in that heart. Here's a man whom Jesus deliberately sought out and healed after 38 years of an infirmity. And Jesus' miracle actually brought persecution down on himself, death threats down on himself. But the man just seems indifferent to Jesus. I think that we would number him with the nine lepers. I don't think that we should number him with a centurion who says, look, you're not even, I'm, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. It's a totally different attitude here. That centurion recognized I deserve nothing from God. And what you find in his heart is just supreme gratitude. The official in John 4, yes, he believed, but also recall he had a sense of entitlement. He demanded Jesus, come down before my son dies, as if Jesus had every obligation to come. This was a kind of skeptical, questioning faith that had to be verified. Well, what hour did it happen? Was it really Jesus that healed my son? And now we come to Bethesda, and it seems that gratitude is just entirely absent. Even though this is a man whom Jesus sought out after 38 years. And the truth is, friends, that God's goodness can and should motivate gratitude in our hearts. But it can actually accomplish the exact opposite. When God condemns the whole world in Romans 1, one of his harshest criticisms and condemnation is this, they did not give thanks. Of all the sins you could come up with, they did not give thanks. The world is surrounded by the beauty and the goodness of God's creation all around them. The food that we eat, the sunlight that we enjoy, the eyes that we look through, the bodies that we walk around in. We're not lying in the hospital today, friends. We're not lying at the pool of Bethesda today. Can God's goodness really cultivate gratitude in our hearts? In conclusion, can we just turn to Romans chapter 2 and look at verses 3 and 4? Can we just take a moment and really reflect on these verses and let this be our concluding prayer? Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here Paul is dealing with a hypocritical man who looks at all God's judgment in chapter 1 of Romans and says, well, I'm pretty good. Can't blame me. In some cases, many scholars feel he's talking about a Jewish man here. That's because of verse 17. But don't apply this just to the Jew. Look at verse 3. And let's, let's, let's meditate on this as we go to prayer. Paul writes, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his goodness and kindness, his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When I was working this text, this is, this is the passage that just kept coming to my mind. God's goodness, God's kindness. 
Don't allow God's riches, His forbearance, His patience, His goodness, His kindness to keep you from repenting. 